Hello and welcome to the next in my series of studies in John's Gospel. I couldn't decide on the title of today's talk whether it's do we have a choice or whether it's can we learn anything from Judas. And that in itself, those two different titles, gives you a kind of clue as to what we're going to talk about. I want to tell you the story of King Henry III of Bavaria. However, I'm not going to tell it to you just yet. I'm going to come back to that uh, later in our, in our video. Do we have a choice? Did Judas have a choice? Are we programmed for certain things? Or is there the opportunity for us to say yes or no? Stephen Covey says, I am not the product of circumstances. I am the product of my decisions. And I do think that's quite an important and helpful concept to realize that we do make choices. We make choices as to how we respond to situations, how we respond to people, how we respond to feelings, how we respond to events and circumstances, whether we choose forgiveness or bitterness, whether we choose um, to, uh, to love or to hate, whether we choose... Uh, to seek God or to turn against him. There are different ways in which we make choices. I'm not yet going to tell you about King Henry III of Bavaria. You're going to have to hang on just a little bit longer. We're in John chapter 13, where Jesus begins by, or John begins by telling us that Jesus is showing the full extent of his love. And he does that initially by washing the disciples' feet, which he tells them in verse 15 is an example, and that they need to do the same as him. And he says, you'll be blessed if you do these things. You'll be blessed if you uh, show the example of serving others in the way that seems the most demeaning or the most difficult and perhaps runs the risk of others looking down on us. In our last study, we looked at how Peter didn't want his feet washed and how Jesus responded that he needed to allow that to happen. And so Jesus says, well, let wash every part of me. And Jesus says, no, I don't need to wash every part of you. I need to wash your feet. And then he kind of seems to expand the metaphor because it seems to imply that, 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 Jesus, that Peter doesn't need complete cleansing, perhaps because he's being with Jesus. Now, it's these two concepts that provide the background and the context for our next verse. The idea that Jesus says you'll be blessed if you do uh, what I do, and the idea that not every part of them needed washing. Because he says in verse 18, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And he's talking about Judas and we're going, Ascariot, and we're going to look as he does and unfolds this. But right at the beginning, there is a difficult question. What is chosenness? And was Judas chosen by Jesus to betray Jesus? I know those I have chosen. What did he mean? Why does he say that at this point? And what can we learn from that? Is there anything we can learn from Judas? Or are our choices predetermined by Jesus? Well, these are difficult questions. They're questions that we come to quite a bit in John's Gospel. And there are things that I've looked at in previous studies. And I don't really want to, to go deeply into a polemic or take one view strongly over the other. But I do want to just explore uh, the word chosen and help, hopefully help all of us, whatever perspective we have on some parts of this, 
to reflect and to learn from how the Bible sees the concept of being chosen. And there are different views, and there are different folks among us who'll be watching this who'll take a different perspective. Now, hopefully, this just gives a little understanding of how uh, folks who see things as I do come to their perspective. But I really hope that it's not a divisive thing, but something that actually that wherever our understanding lies, we can learn from. So there is the view that chosenness refers to salvation, that God chooses who he was going to save, that when he talks about a chosen people, he means the people he was going to save. But the alternative view is that chosenness is for a role. And that does seem to be the more common use of the word chosen in the Old Testament. And again, they're following on into the new. In other words, that God chooses people to do something. He chooses Abraham's descendants to be a blessing to the world. We read that in the early chapters of Genesis, verses, uh, chapters 12 and 18 and so on, where Abraham is called by God and he says, uh, God says to Abraham, your people, your descendants are to be a blessing to the world. And Abraham is chosen and God's people are chosen to be a blessing to the world. Later on in Deuteronomy, they're described as God's possession God's treasured possession, the people of God, that which he can do and use um, as a possession. It seems to be for his benefit that we are chosen more than perhaps for our benefit, although it benefits us. The word chosen, of course, is used in the Old Testament to refer to the Messiah, who is the chosen one. And again, this is about a role. And as we move into the New Testament, we see that God's chosen people are chosen to declare who God is to a hurting world. And this passage in 1 Peter 2 is really significant. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. In other words, that we serve the king and we are the intermediaries between the king and the ordinary people. That's what a priest was, someone who, who, who stood between. And there's a role here. It's about doing and being something a holy nation, God's chosen possession, linking and picking up on the whole concept from the Old Testament. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We've been chosen to tell people about what God has done in our lives. There is a purpose to chosenness. So when we think then about this passage in John 13, 18 and the concept of Judas being chosen, was he chosen to be a disciple or was he chosen to be the betrayer? Was he chosen as one of the 12 or was he chosen as an individual to do something different? Well, John seems to imply, and Christians will take different views on this, but he seems to imply, certainly in John 6, that the 12 are chosen as a complete unit. So there were 12 men who were chosen to be disciples. We read in John 6, 70, have I not chosen you, the 12, yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who through one of the 12 was late, though one of the 12 was later to betray him. And this is an interesting verse in this context because it does seem that John is saying the 12 are chosen as a 12, but one of the 12 was going to do the wrong thing. One of the 12 who were chosen was going to act in a way that didn't fit in with their chosenness. At least that's one way of understanding it. In a verse or two later in our passage in John 13, it says this, that Jesus was troubled in spirit. 
And this is a, a phrase that we've, looked, we've seen before in John's Gospel. There's a sense of anguish, there's a disturbance, there's a pain, there's a, a guttural feeling of this is not good. After this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And it seems that the, the betrayal that Judas is about to enact is something that deeply disturbs Jesus. It doesn't look like it's what he wants. Now, of course, other Christians will read it differently, but there is certainly a legitimate reading of saying this appears to be something that is distressing Jesus, that Judas is about to betray him. Now, this verse 13, 18 has quoted uh, an Old Testament passage. It says, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. So that it's clear that the Old Testament foretells this betrayal. So is foreknowledge, is God knowing what is going to happen, the proof of a plan? Here's the passage in Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who I shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now note that the one who betrays is one who is trusted. And again, you get the feeling that this is an act that wasn't what was wanted or desired. This isn't that Judas was chosen from the very beginning of time to be the one to betray Jesus. It seems more that he was one who was trusted, that he was a close friend, and yet he went against that trust. He betrayed, perhaps, the choice that was on him. But is Jesus knowing and is Scripture predicting it? Is that an indication that everything was predetermined and preplanned? Is foreknowledge proof of a plan? Of course, that is one way of understanding it. But I also like the, the, the metaphor or the idea, or the, of the, of a, and I've used this before, of the, the great chess master. And those of you who know chess or know anything about chess will know that people who are very, very good at chess, chess masters, they can f predict a number of moves and they work out what they're going to do in every eventuality. They can see the future and they are able to, to respond to it. That doesn't mean they've determined it, but it does mean they're able to predict it. And what does it mean to have foreknowledge? Jesus goes on in verse 19, I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. So this foreknowledge appears to be a sign of the divinity of Jesus. It, he t predicts this for them so that they know who he is. So how does he predict it? Is it that he, that he is, uh, because he's divine, because he's God, he's outside of time. He can see the end from the beginning. He can see what we do even though it's completely free to us. That's one perspective. There is, of course, the other idea that he has pre-planned what people do. But I'm sharing with you my understanding to see how that, that fits with the scriptures that we have as well as other understandings. It may be that Jesus has foreknowledge. It's clear uh, because he's outside of time. It's clear that the Bible has foreknowledge, that God knows some things are going to happen. It may be that he has wisdom beyond all our understanding. And it is like the chess player who can foresee that personalities uh, and people will react in a certain way. Maybe that uh, God gave to the psalmist the understanding that there would be within the 12, it was likely that somebody would turn against Jesus. 
Maybe it was a supernatural discernment to recognize the heart of Judas. It's certainly clear, as John and the other gospel writers uh, tell us, that there were stages in Judas turning against Jesus. And those stages seem to have been discerned and recognized by Jesus. He sees them coming. So foreknowledge is definitely part of the Bible. Does it mean that things are planned? Not necessarily. We certainly get the feeling that Jesus is distressed by Judas. The next verse does appear in one sense to be slightly at odds and in a, a, a different context. Because Jesus says, very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send me and whoever accepts me accepts the one who has sent me. Now, what does that mean? Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And why does he say it now? Well, it, it seems to be about the mission, the choice of the disciples and their status. That those he chose, he chose to be his messengers. He chose them to go in his name. He's chosen them to be sent. And he says something quite remarkable that those who are sent carry his authority. They are as if they are his royal family because anyone who rejects those who he has sent is rejecting him, the Messiah, the Son of God, the living God incarnate. He is suggesting that those who he sends are his divine representative. He is suggesting that their mission is, has his authority. But he's also suggesting that rejection is possible. He's saying, look, in a way he's saying, I am sending you and if anyone accepts you, they accepts me. And in brackets you might want to put, as he does in other places, and anyone who doesn't accept you rejects me. And you're getting this idea again of mission, of chosenness, and of choice. That people have a choice whether to accept the representatives of Jesus. That he is sending them as chosen disciples. Verse 21 takes us back onto the theme of Judas. And after he'd said this, we'd already looked at this a moment or two ago, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, tell you one of you is going to betray me. And we get the, the, the understanding that the disciples had no idea what was going on. So his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Now we talked about this on another study, but just briefly, just to remind ourselves, I used to think that this was a very arrogant way of John to describe himself. Oh, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. That's not actually the spirit of what John is saying. He describes himself as a disciple whom Jesus loved, not as a point of arrogance, but actually as a point of recognition. I am the one who discovered I was loved. He describes himself as the one who knew that Jesus loved him. And this is him writing many years later and looking back. And uh, the way he wants to put himself in the story is someone who discovered that Jesus loved him. And that's an incredibly beautiful picture, isn't it? The one who knew that Jesus loved him. And perhaps there's a tiny contrast with Judas, who didn't know he was loved, who had become estranged. We understand from the way he responds to the, 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 the cleansing of Jesus' feet with the expensive perfume earlier on. We, we discover that he is uh, not, not 
happy with Jesus. He wanted Jesus to do something different, to care for the poor. He was the disciple who looked after the money and he felt that Jesus wasn't doing enough to change the world. But John describes himself as the one who is loved, who knew the care and compassion and the commitment of Jesus to him, something that Judas doesn't seem to have. So the disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining next to him. And Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and asked him, which one, ask him which one he means. He says, look, you're sitting next to him. You find out who he means. And leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread. And when I've dipped it in, when I've dipped it in the dish, then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. It's interesting, isn't it, that Satan takes hold of Judas the moment he accepts the bread. That's the moment where what he is doing is powered and empowered by evil. So is this the moment of choice for Judas? Could Judas have said, I'm rejecting the call to betray you? Could he have turned the bread aside? Could he have said, it's not me, I don't want to do it. I want to turn away from this. I don't want to do this now. It was in my heart, yes, but I'm rejecting it. We will have different views on that. For my own case, I think that Judas could have refused the bread. Jesus would have been crucified one way or the other. In natural fact, his role is small in the, in the outcome of Jesus. The soldiers were looking for, Judas, uh, for Jesus. They would have found Jesus. They would have taken him to the authorities. They would have crucified him. Judas's role is not significant in the death of Jesus. It's significant in the relationship because he chooses to side with those who are hunting Jesus down. He chooses to betray Jesus. But if he hadn't, if he had turned against and said, no, no, I, I repent, would God, Jesus have allowed it? For my own view, I think he would because it makes sense of this concept of him being troubled. It makes sense of this concept of him being a trusted disciple. It makes sense of him forewarning and saying, look, this is about to happen and making it clear and so that Judas understands the implications of taking the bread. He knows what he is doing. It's laid out for him. And we see so often in the Old Testament where to the God's chosen people, and particularly in Deuteronomy again, God says to his chosen people, I lay before you a choice, a blessing or a curse. You can choose to do this and there will be blessing. You can choose to do that and there will be curse. And it seems almost as if Judas is in that moment. So is this the moment that Judas refused what Jesus had for him? Because it was after he took the bread that Satan entered into him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. 
since Judas had charge of the money. Some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. It was beyond their comprehension that one of them would betray them. Jesus had an understanding and an insight into the heart of Judas that none of them could see. Just as we know, God has an insight into our hearts and our resentments and our feelings, though nobody else can see it. And as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now, we looked at this strange ways to be glorified just a few studies ago, so I want to point you back to that rather than go into why this moment of abandonment, this moment of betrayal, this moment of crucifixion is actually the glory of Jesus. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And... John says, if God is glorified, Jesus says, if God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Now is the moment when the wonder and power and glory of Jesus is revealed, not in power, in, in force, in majesty, but in humility, in servanthood, in sacrifice, in betrayal, in restraint in death. King Henry III of Bavaria. Some of you will know that King Henry III of Bavaria, tired of being king, he found it difficult to balance following his faith in God and being king. There seemed to be so many compromises. The royal court seemed such a... uh, an extravagant place, such a godless place at times. And he wanted to commit his life to something more significant and meaningful than being king with all the prestige and all the people bowing down. And so he chose to denounce and renounce his throne. And he went to a a monastic order and knelt before the prior of the monastery. And he declared that he'd renounced all earthly treasures and all earthly things and that he was committed to serving God and to entering the monastery as a monk. And the uh, leader of that monastic order asked him if he promised to do whatever Christ asked of him. And he said, yes, I do. And so he said to him, go back and be the king of Bavaria and do it for Christ. And he went back and served his saviour by being king. What has this story got to do with Judas? See, I believe God has chosen each one of us for tasks and for mission Things that are unique for us, as Ephesians 2 says, created for a good works created for us before the beginning of time. Things that our skills and our experience and our ability and our location, only we can do. Maybe the things we do at work, it may be the things we do with friends, it may be the things we do in church, it may be the things we do with family. It may be tiny, isolated incidents It may be a consistent pattern in our life. 
But I believe God has chosen every one of us to be a priest, to be his people, to be his possession, to serve him as he created us to do, to be sent in his name with his royal authority that we go as his ambassadors and that to, to listen to us is to listen to the very words of God. But our question for reflection are these. What do we feel are the chosen tasks God has asked of us? Will we be like the other 11 who faultingly and with many mistakes follow through and obey what God has called them to and the reason they were chosen as a 12? Or might we be like Judas, who I believe rejected the choice that God had for him to be one of the 12 and chose a different path, chose to give in to the resentment and the anger within his heart. Do we choose God's way or our own way? And if we're choosing God's way, what is that going to look like? What does it look like? Are we able to see within the pattern of our lives? And I know for many of us that's hard to imagine or see. But dare we say, Lord, here I am. Like the king of Bavaria, we may feel, I can't see how I can be used. And God just says, go back and do what you were doing and do it for me. Go back and do what you were doing and do it for me. Are we refusing or embracing God's choice? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you've called us to a task unique to us, to love the people you've placed in our lives, to serve the people you've placed in our lives, to serve our workplace, our community, our family, to be the very ambassadors of Jesus, to enact the love and care that he has, to be your hands and feet. Lord, we thank you for such an incredible mission and that you sending us in your name. And Lord, we choose to accept, we choose to obey, and though it may be painful, and though it means going back to a place that we don't necessarily want to, we choose to do it for you. Heavenly Father, help us. Fill us with your spirit that we may follow through on that which you've chosen us for. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.